Good morning everyone, you're tuned to Community Radio 3CR, time is just after 7.30 and of course that's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy, first up of course we have to welcome back Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants. Morning Stephen. Good morning Pam and good morning everybody out there and it's going to be a lovely day. So It is. We should be out enjoying our gardens and doing stuff. It's going to be wet and miserable soon enough, so we might as well be out there having a nice time. So today would be a good day to get out in the garden. Well, I think we've got a couple of days of, of basically sunshine yeah. and uh, perfect time. Oh, yes. Yes, get out there and get rid of those last weeds and get things ready for their winter sleep and all that sort of stuff. Do weeds ever sleep? Uh, well, probably <laughs> Sometimes not in this I country. Doubt it. Yeah, well, of course, one, one weed is sleeping, another one's moving. So That's right. So all, all the winter grass will be coming up and the, and the, and the ground crests and the... Yeah, all that stuff. Oh, but yes. Yeah, it's all part of, part of the fun of gardening, really. Absolutely. Yeah, so, but no, it'll be a lovely day to be out in the garden. And I'm on my way to, uh, uh, to Bur- 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 Ballarat, Ballarat this, you this are. morning. Yes, so you I'm are. going to be up at the soil yard in um, Delacombe today. And I'm also going to call in on one of the open gardens. Oh, good. Uh, yes, the lady who owns the, the garden centre I'm going to this morning to do a thing about you know, interesting plants and also talk about e-wood. Um, uh, her mum's garden is open for Open Gardens Victoria this morning in Picton Street, Sebastopol. So, ah, so, so that's Hillside Garden. Yeah, so I'm going to call in there first and yes. go and have a look at the garden and then I'll go around to the, the uh, garden centre and I'll be there talking to people about lunchtime, I guess. So there you go. So busy day for me today. Absolutely. Mm, rush, rush, rush. Yep. Not that it hasn't been a busy week. <laughs> And even last weekend. Yes. Oh, yes. Rush, rush. Yep. Every, everything's happening. Absolutely. We have to say a very good morning to Craig Wilson from Gentiana Nursery. Good morning, Craig. Morning, Pam. I've just got back from the far north of New Zealand. So oh, have you? Feeling the cold. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, it's warmer around Auckland and further north than it is around here at the moment, I guess. Way warmer. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and, and sort of humid. Mm. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, and coming back to a cold front coming through the Dandenongs was, was a bit much. Yes, anyway, I'll say. Yes. At least you haven't had snow flurries, I hope. No, we've had an awful lot of rain. Right. Yeah. Yep. It's just started clearing up this morning, I hope, so I can get out and clean some leaves up later. I have to say, you know, earlier in the week, my garden was just so waterlogged. It's been incredible. <laughs> it has. It's been it's... amazing. But it means now that the ground has got a bit of moisture into it. And, and But I'll guarantee if you dig down near a tree... It'll still, still be, be dry. It'll still be dry under oh, there. Yes. I absolutely guarantee it. Yeah. Uh, but at least the surface soil has been dampened down now. And I've noticed in my garden that the the um, my garden goes fairly hydrophobic by late summer, and mm. it's really hard to get water in. You only need a bit of rain, and it just breaks it. Yeah. And, and so now that I've had that rain, the the soil's no longer hydrophobic and it'll now take in any new rains that we get and it'll soak right down into the ground. Yeah. So feeling reasonably relaxed about the autumn, I have to say. That's right. And it's certainly planting season now. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Get things in the ground. That's right. Soil's still warm, a bit yeah. of moisture. You yeah. get things established before the cold weather. I think it's a great time to mm. plant. Yeah. Terrific. Okay. I'm going to get straight on to community announcements. Uh, first up. Uh, let me see. Uh, today is, of course, the second day of the Friends of Royal Botanic Gardens Melbourne uh, Growing Friends Autumn Plant Sale, which means I presume that if you didn't get along there yesterday, people will be lined up at 10 o'clock this morning. Yep. Gatey, Birdwood Avenue there, and um, they have an enormous range of um, 
you name it, plants, yeah. shrubs, perennials, you know, the, mm. the list goes on and on. And, of course, all of the funds raised go into projects around the Botanic Gardens, which is a very worthy uh, thing to be involved in. So, And they've raised hundreds of thousands of dollars over they the have. years with their plant sales. So uh, the Botanic Gardens in Melbourne have um, benefited greatly from the Growing Friends group who've worked tirelessly, tirelessly over the years. And I think next year is going to be their 30th year. I think that's... Oh, um, God, is it really? Yes. Because uh, I remember being involved sort of peripherally in the very first plant sale because uh, at that point one of the growing friends was a close friend of mine, Dar McDonald, and she ne- now lives up the other side of Kyabram. Um, and she and Lydia Bartlett, who was, you know... Dear well old known Lydia. To, known yes. to us as a Cyclamen collector and, and <laughs> pedant. Um, and she and uh, Lydia were two of the founding members and... Uh, 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 Dale invited me to come down to have a look at the stock when it was laid out on the lawn in front of the astronomer's residence, which, which is where they first used to do it. Yes. And I went round and repriced everything because they had everything far too cheap um, and then promptly went round and bought stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I cut myself uh, <laughs> a did, bit. But uh, it, was, it was worth it. And I ended, I'm still growing some of the plants that I bought at that very first plant sale. Uh, I'm still propagating and growing some mm. of those plants because quite a few of them came in from the Botanic Gardens nursery itself. There were sort of oddments that were excess to their requirements that they donated to the growing friends to sell. And so there was a few quite rare weird things that um, uh, I've never seen again since. So, you know, it was, it was great value getting in there in the early days, but they grow some amazing plants even oh, they today. Do. And, uh, and lots of stuff that's not generally available commercially, so it does give you an opportunity to get something a bit different. I mean, they and work plants. very hard propagating mm. to prepare yeah. for these uh, mm. shows. Yes. Plants that obviously grow well in Melbourne too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, because yeah, yes. a good percentage of the stuff, of course, is, uh, well, some of it's sourced from the growing friends own gardens and things, but quite a, a, a large lot of percentage it's from the is from the gardens. Yep. Mm. So it's propagated from the gardens with the help of the garden staff to get material and things. Mm. And uh, they certainly grow good quality plants at a very reasonable price. And yes, you'll get something a little different from your garden if you zoom out there this morning. Absolutely. Mm. So as I said, Gatey uh, off Birdwood Drive, um, it's open today, uh, 10 o'clock this morning, running through until 3 o'clock this afternoon, and free entry for that one as well. So uh, do go along and help support the gardens. Now, coming up next Saturday, I should quickly mention, is um, the Floral Arts Society of Victoria have got their annual floral theatre presentations and craft expo. Now, the venue is the Knox Community Arts Centre Theatre, which is on the corner of Mountain Highway and Scoresby Road there in Bayswater. It commences at 10am. It's an all-day event. Uh, cost is 45 if you're a member of Royal Horticultural Society Victoria, $50 for non-members, and um, there'll be lots and lots of displays there and uh, craft. There'll be trading tables, etc. So uh, that's next Saturday. Uh And as I said, uh, it will be an all-day event starting at 10am. Now, as Stephen alluded, there are two gardens open today up in the Ballarat area. Uh, Hillside Garden, which we mentioned briefly, at 21 Picton Street in Sebastopol, open from 10 through to 4.30. Entry price is $8, under-18s free, students $5. And also the other one opening is Cameron House, this is at 514 Humphrey, and Humphrey is spelt H U M 
double F R A Y. Oh, never would have guessed that. No, if you're looking for that in the uh, Melways, H U M double F R A Y, Humphrey Street South in Golden Point in Ballarat. So uh, both of those gardens opening today, 10 through till 4.30, and the same entry price for both gardens. And, of course, then you can uh, pop along to hear Stephen at uh, the Soil Yard. Now, that's at 426 Sutton Street in Delacombe. Uh, according to this, you're talking at one thirty, Stephen, so yeah. that gives you a little bit oh, more yes, time I've, to get up there. Yes, I've got a wee bit of time to up my sleeve. I might even get lunch today. That might be oh, nice. Oh, that might be helpful. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, while we're talking Open Gardens Victoria, of course, next weekend they also have two gardens opening, and these gardens are in research, which is quite close to me. Uh, the first one is Annie's Garden, which is at 27 Brenda Road in research. Um, this is a delightful one-acre garden uh, mounded into several beds at the front to catch water with plantings of crepe myrtles, a variety of pears, ornamental pomegranates, fruit trees and a stunning forest pansy under a canopy of box and stringy bark. Um, Now, all of the trees have been underplanted with salvias, euphorbias, spreading cyclamens and hellebores and uh, the other garden is uh, the Linden, which is at 10 Margaret Street in Research, so they're very close to each other. And uh, this garden uh, encompasses a three-quarter acre site, beds on either side of a sweeping lawn, um, which leads down to fruit trees, a vegetable garden and pool area. The beds are mostly natives, um, including corriers, uh, eremophilas, grevilleas, banksias and prostanthras. And ornamental pears, a ginkgo, Japanese pagoda tree. So both gardens um, complementing each other. They're both going to be very different to go and have a look at. And uh, that should be lots of fun. And it looks like uh, two of the gardenettes will be out there conducting a session um, on the Sunday between 12 and 1 yeah. o'clock. I wonder if Linden's got a Linden, though. They yes, don't that's mention yes. Yeah. <laughs> you and I must be thinking on the same sort of yeah. way. You would yeah. hope that it would be the tree that named the garden. Yeah, yeah. well, you that would, although I know a garden that... up at Mount Macedon that's called Seven Oaks and it's only got three. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we won't go there. Yeah, yeah. Uh... Anyway, both those gardens, of course, in true form, next weekend, Saturday and Sunday, 10 o'clock through till 430 and again, our very good friends at Open Gardens Victoria have given us two free double passes, one to each garden. The first uh, two callers, if you haven't received a free double pass uh, recently from us, if you'd like to ring in on nine four one nine zero one double five, and uh, you can each receive uh, one of those free double passes. Now, uh, I should also mention uh, the... Uh, the next uh, talk being given by the uh, uh, Australian, uh, where am I? Uh, this is the Keylor Plains Group um, of the Australian uh, Plant Society, Keylor Plains Group. Now, they've got uh, a free talk coming up, and this is a free talk. It's coming up next Friday, May the 5th, uh, starting at 7.45pm, and it's at 54 Rally Road in Maribyrnong. So this is a different location from their usual. So if you take note of that, 54 Rally, but Rally is spelt 
R-A-L-E-I-G-H. So uh, if you're trying to look that one up, R-A-L-E-I-G-H, 54, Rally Road in Maribyrnong. Now, um, the guest speaker is going to be uh, Dr. Greg Moore, and he's going to be talking about um, the focus on the importance of planting suitable trees in private gardens in Melbourne to offset the effects of climate change. So he'll be making suggestions as to how to select trees wisely for their inclusion in suburban gardens and how to maintain their health. And the focus will be on Australian natives that have proven to be resilient to climate change in scientific trials. So uh, that should be most interesting. If you uh, you do need to uh, register to say you're coming, I believe there's already quite a few people uh, wanting to come along to that one. So to register, you can contact Anne, and the number is 9336-3228. That's 9336-3228 for that talk by Dr Greg Moore. Uh, now, let me see. Um, a couple more I really should mention uh, because these are all coming up. Pepper Tree Place have got their next... Uh, Swap meet happening next Saturday, 6th of May. Uh, But as well, they've got a scarecrow competition running for this one. First prize is going to be $60 uh, nursery voucher from Pepper Tree Place. Now, they're inviting uh, schools, families, individuals, after-school care or holiday programs to enter. You simply bring your scarecrow along for judging um, to the swap meet, the food meet, Uh, on Saturday the 6th, uh, but you need to be there by 11am to enter. And you can register your entry to say you're coming and you're going to be putting in a scarecrow at swap at kildonan.org.au. Kildonan is K-I-L-D-O-N-A-N. So register at swap at kildonan.org.au. Now also next Saturday they're going to be running a uh, food Web Nature Play Workshop for children aged 4 to 10. This will take place from 11am through to 11.40. And um, this is being held by Isabel Harper, who's a passionate environmental educator working with Food Web Education. Now, uh, it, this is going to be the start of a series of workshops. Um, it's suitable for ages 4 to 10. Cost is $8 a full or $5 concession. Again, limited places available. So to register that same uh, web address, swap at kildonan.org.au or they do have a phone number, 84010100. That's 84010100. Now also coming up, Friends of Burnley Gardens, uh, their next workshop is going to be making Kokudama balls with Tanya Beer. Now, this is taking place again next Saturday. Room uh, PS16, you follow the signs, out at Burnley College, uh, which is uh, 500 Yarra Boulevard there in Richmond. It's running from 10am through to 12 noon. Cost is $40 if you're a member of the Friends Group, $50 if you're a non-member. All materials and plants will be supplied and, of course, parking is available in the boulevard. Bookings and payments are essential. Uh, you can go to friends.burnley 
at gmail.com or you can telephone 9035-6815. That's 9035-6815 for that one. And uh, <clears throat> finally, um, I should give you advance notice on this one because uh, Villa Alba, it will be open next Sunday, not not today, but next Sunday, the 7th of May. But as well as their usual opening on the Sunday, they're going to be having uh, two separate tours. At 1.30, Andrew Thorne will be describing the archaeology of the house and its decoration. And at 2.45, Mrs Jessie Searle will outline the reconstruction of the garden, articulating the marriage between archaeological evidence and the plants available at the time. Now, there is no additional charge for those tours. I will mention that again next weekend. Uh, so you'll simply pay the normal entry to get in to uh, have a look at Villa Alba and the garden, which is $10, uh, $8 concession. Children are free. So that's taking place next Sunday, 1 till 4, and I'll mention that again next week. Okay, well, it's more than time we opened up our lines for Talkback. If you'd like to ask a gardening question this morning, we'd love to hear from you. We have Stephen Ryan and uh, Craig Wilson in the studio this morning, so uh, see if you can bamboozle them. Oh, shouldn't be too hard this morning, at least for me. <laughs> anyway, do give us a call. That number is 94190155, 94190155 to speak to the team on air. Stephen, let's start straight in on uh, a couple of your plants. All right. Uh, well, it's autumn, so I thought we'd better have some autumn colour in the studio for a start. And uh, they match your shirt, funnily enough. I hadn't thought that through, but there you go. Uh, yes, maybe it does. Um, the plant I've got here is one of the viburnums. Now, I think viburnums are a great group of plants. They're, they're a group of plants that... You, can, you can't have too many of in the garden because there's evergreen ones, there's deciduous ones, there's perfumed ones, there's autumn-coloured ones, there's burying ones, there's smallish ones, there's layered ones. Uh, they're one of the few genera I know of that you could almost make a whole garden out of and it wouldn't look boring because there's so much diversity. Mm. I mean, if you make a camellia garden, they're all dark green. Yes. And there'll be the pink, the white, and the red one. Uh, and when they're not flowering, they're all dark green. Yeah, and there's sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, some have little leaves and bigger leaves. I don't want to be unfair to camellias, but if you collected a whole garden full of them, you'd probably need a miner's lamp to go around the garden for a start. Uh, but viburnums have a huge diversity, and so you could easily be a collector of them in a suburban garden, and it wouldn't look boring. And the one I brought along today is a form of viburnum opulus, so the People would know the snowball tree, Viburnum opulus roseum. Uh, this one is Viburnum opulus aureum, uh, the golden gilder rose or snowball tree. Uh, it's not a sterile form, so it has lace cap flowers, not the round-headed okay. ones. So you get little white lace cap flowers in the spring. Its foliage is a lovely, soft, chartreuse greeny, yellow, right from spring till autumn. And then it goes these really pretty sort of pinky red colours in the autumn as it turns and gets ready to drop. It'll also produce red berries. So you've got spring flowers, summer berries, foliage right from spring through till autumn and then the autumn colour. So, And it's not a particularly big growing shrub. Probably a metre and a half, two metres will see it out. Uh, 
it would be ideal in a, in, a, in a garden anywhere, and yet you don't see it for sale terribly often. It's one of those that sort of seems to have slipped through the net a bit. Require uh, a bit of protection from the hot afternoon sun? The really hot afternoon sun, probably, but it's oh. not too bad in the sun. Um, it's not as bad as some other goldy foliage plants yeah. as far as scorching is concerned. Um, and it's, it seems to be as hardy as any of the other Viburnum opuluses, just a little bit slower growing. Mm. And so I think it's really quite a charming plant. So it's Viburnum opulus aureus, the gold-leafed Gilda Rose, or well, I don't suppose you can really call it a snowball tree because it's not no, snowball. It's <laughs> yeah, but it does have pretty white lace cap flowers on it. So well worth looking out for and a really useful shrub for its effect throughout the year. The thing that impresses me about it, Stephen, is it's not garish. No. It's a soft pink and that mm. would fit into most colour schemes in the garden. Might even tone down some of those nareens you've got in flower at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting variation in autumn colour. I'm always on the lookout for something that's not just your classical bright yellow, bright orange, bright yes, red. Yes, yes. I have to say orange can often be hard to get a good clear autumn orange. Um, it's, it's a really much more subtle and unusual colour combination. Mm, it's lovely. So, uh, it's a really pretty shrub and, and uh, would go into almost any garden combination, I reckon. Uh, the only thing with these things is, and it, go, it comes through with this as well, is don't put it in too much shade because it'll just go green. green yeah. So it does need a bit of light okay. to keep up the gold colour in the summer. It's a good mm. size. Mm. Perfect. I mean, yep. it's just one of those plants that, you know, in an average suburban garden, you'd be able to fit in quite easily. Mm. Sounds like a gold leaf form of Oculus Compactum. Yeah, I don't know whether it is or not. I, uh, I've got a sense that it actually even predates Compactum, okay. um, uh, at least in England. I mean, it's yep. not been here that long, but... Uh, um, and it seems to be a little looser. It's not right. as tightly bushy. Yep. So I'm not sure that it is, uh, but certainly it's not got compactor in the name. It's just aureus. And yep. It may well be just because it's got that gold in the foliage that keeps it smaller and more yep. compact. I don't know. But it's a good, good viburnum. Mm. Very interesting plant. Mm. And the other one? Well, this one here is a, a maple, an acer, uh, that was originally found in New Zealand by Peter Cave. Uh, it's one of the snake bark maples, and it's called Esk Flamingo. And it does stuff all the time. It's an amazing little maple. It's very quick growing. It has a sort of pendulous weepy habit, which is very handsome. Uh, grows quite quickly. Uh, and it has this amazing pinky white mottled variegation throughout the foliage, which it has from spring till autumn, although the earliest leaves in the spring tend to have less variegation and it gets more so as the season goes on. So you've got that incremental change, which I actually find quite appealing. Mm. If something does something that it does all year round, then you can often just start not looking at it. You know, because it just looks the same. Yes. Uh, in the autumn, it goes all sorts of yellows, apricots, all sorts of weird colours before it sheds. And in the winter when it's bare, you've got this lovely weepy habit, which in itself is lovely. I love weeping trees. But the trunks are green and white striped and the twigs are bright pink. So in the winter, the, the, the form and colour of the plant itself would be is, amazing. It is. It's truly amazing. I had two of them in tubs uh, out from my kitchen window on my back sort of terracy area. Um, I eventually had to take them out because they got unbalanced in the pots. They were just so big in the pots, they looked a bit silly. Um, but whilst they were there for some years, you, well, the kitchen sink is somewhere you stand a lot. That's so right. So you need to have something entertaining to look out on yes. uh, whilst you're breaking dishes and things. Uh, and I don't think I ever stood at the kitchen sink and didn't stare at these trees uh, because they were changing throughout the whole year. Um, and um, 
yeah, they entertained me no end. Mm. And I think it's a lovely little maple. It seems to be comparatively hardy. I wouldn't put it out in the hottest sun because I reckon it might scorch in the summer a bit. And I do find if you put them in heavy shade, they start losing their variegation, interestingly enough, so they don't become as variegated if they're in really dense shade. So plenty of light. Perhaps not too much of the hot, stinking mid-afternoon sun. Um, once they're established, they seem to be reasonably drought tolerant. I think maples are in general. I think people don't yes, realise how drought tolerant <clears throat> they can be. Um, but certainly a very pretty little tree. Uh, there's some dispute over its parentage, but as far as I know, it was found as a seedling in Peter Cave's garden, and it's possibly got hybridity in it. But it's um, it's one of the snake bark maples, I guess, is the best you can do. So um, yeah, so Asa esque flamingo. And one of the last to colour up in my garden. Yeah, it does wait, doesn't it? Yeah, quite late. Yeah, yeah. so it really is a very pretty little tree. Mm. And my gut feeling is I've never seen one that's ancient because I don't suppose it's been about that long. But I would have said three to four metres would be all right. Yeah, maximum, I yeah, would have thought. Yeah, because yeah. I, I, yeah. I, well, my original that I had in the tubs, I planted one of them out in the garden and it would be three, three and a half metres, I suppose. Mm. Uh, but with this rather beautiful sort of... It's sort of arching without being self-consciously weeping. Right. Yeah, it's not a serious weeper, is it? No, no. You know how you buy a standard weeping tree and it's sort of oh, grafted yes, it's... on a thing and it grows out like an umbrella or a mushroom. Uh, <laughs> this is a much more relaxed sort of thing. Um, I sort of... Using an analogy, it reminds me more of a weeping willow than a okay. weeping cherry. Yes. Mm. You know, it's got that much more relaxed, natural weeping form about it than yes. some of those standard trees have. So very worthwhile looking out for. I have seen it actually sold as a standard. I can't quite understand why you'd bother um, because all you need to do is train it up a little bit and it goes up and over of its own accord. And I quite like the idea of having twigs down to ground level because you've got those lovely pink twigs in the winter. Mm. Yeah. So why would you want a clean trunk uh, when you've got you know the potential exactly. for all that lovely stuff so yep. i would buy it as a young tree uh preferably either grafted at ground level or grown as a cutting this one's actually a cutting grown plant um and um yeah you'll get lots of pleasure out of it fantastic so there we go esque flamingo okay that number again if you'd like to join us this morning nine four one nine zero one double five we will be running through until nine fifteen, our usual time slot so we'd love to hear from you this morning nine four one nine zero one double five Craig, you've also brought in a few bits and pieces there. Yeah, autumn's the season for grasses. They're looking absolutely spectacular mm. at the moment, covered in flowers, and the leaves are starting to turn a bit. And I brought in my favourite miscanthus, or one of my favourites, which is I was going to say you've got a favourite, which is Clyde Fontaine. <laughs> yeah. The reason I like it is it doesn't get enormous, right? It one point eight metres probably, mm. um, and the clumps don't open up when it gets old. Quite a lot of them as canthus, once they've been in the ground for a few years, they tend to flop open by this time of the year. Yes. And to dig them up and divide them is a job. Oh, is it what? Yeah. Yes. yes you, they're hard work. They're hard work. You mm. put Klein Fontaine in and you can just leave it. It's very rigid. So, favourite miscanthus. Fair enough. Yeah. My another favourite, Epimedium um, versicolor neosulfurum, which yeah, is probably wonderful name, but <laughs> yeah, one of the most common epimediums around. But it's such a survivor, mm. and I find that if you give it two or three hours of sun in the morning, you get this incredible autumn colour in it, Beautiful. which it holds right through the winter till flowering. Yeah, in a sense, it's almost not autumn colour, is it? It's it's something else. It starts in autumn, but it just keeps going. Keeps going. Yeah, that's so, right. You know, so it's winter colour as well. Yeah. You know, so it's it. Some of the epimediums are lovely, and you're right, that one's a good one. It's a good one, and it needs it needs a bit of sun to get this colour. If you put it in full shade, it'll just stay green. Right. Yeah. And pretty little lemon yellow flowers in the spring. Which yeah, go beautifully with the red leaves. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. It's a good plant and tough. Excellent. Yeah. Yes, to throw a John Patrick joke in here, you don't water them too much or too little, you give them an epimedium. <laughs> As that I pointed out, like it was John. a John Patrick joke. You know, <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, that's John. Yeah. It okay. is actually quite a good way of remembering their name, though. It is a very yeah, good name. Yes, no- yes. It sort of locks epimedium into your head. It yeah. does. Yeah. Yep. Although you don't really want to go into a nursery and ask for a happy medium. Yeah. <laughs> Look, there are so many of them, and it's worth sifting through and mm. finding the good ones because the ones which are bred just for flowers. Yeah, the foliage. Sort of high harm. I'd be looking at foliage yes. when I buy epimediums these yes. days. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay, we'll go to our first caller. We have uh, Helen, who's out in Ascot Vale. Good morning, Helen. Oh, morning, everybody. Um, I've got a, a maple, not the little leaf ones, the big sort of tough ones that now are used for street trees quite a lot. Yeah. Whitish trunk and the leaves do go very red, but not the real lipstick. But it, it seems to have a borer where... Um, Branches have been pruned off in the wrong way, and I think it must be borer that's got in a little white grub and a lot of sort of blackish sawdust. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like a borer. How long have, has that tree got to live? It's in several spots. Uh, depends on whether it's been ringbarked or not. Uh, if it's been completely ringbarked by the borers, because that was, is what they often do, they'll, they'll eat the bark all the way around the trunk and make a little sort of sawdust sort of tunnel for themselves. Uh, if they've eaten all the way around the trunk, then there's little, you know, they can sometimes survive, but there's very little chance they will because all of that sap flow has been cut off from the branch above. And so the, the mm. above borer bit will probably die. If the trunk hasn't been ringbarked and you deal with the borer immediately, uh, they can regrow again and seal over. So it's it's dependent on that, really. Okay. Um, would I see the ring barking or is it underneath the bark? No, you should see it. It should be this sort of ring of sawdust that goes all the way around the trunk. Right. No, no. That, well, in that case, it hasn't, but it's at several sites. Yeah, well, just get yourself some natural turpentine, not mineral. Yeah. Uh, and a syringe. Um don't look like a drug addict when you go into the <laughs> chemist to get a syringe. Uh, and, um, and just put the natural turpentine in the syringe and squirt it down their holes. And they'll come rushing out okay. like you wouldn't believe. They're big holes. They've been quite solid branches. Yeah. I, I'm not altogether sure it's borer. I wonder whether it's something more like um, uh, cockchafer grubs or something that have got down in, in uh, where well, the... Well, OK. I've only been reported the little white grubs. Very quite big enough to see easily. Oh, well, true oh, borers are. Big. Yeah, they're quite big grubs. Uh, mm. But that's what I would do. Um, and just keep your keep a, a watching brief on the tree after that. Okay, well, the natural turpentine won't kill the tree. Anyway. No, that's no, why no. I say natural turpentine, not mineral turpentine. Oh, yeah, all right. Well, thank you very much. That's okay. a pleasure. Good luck with that. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Yes, borers can be a real pain because you often have the damage done before you even realise right. they're there. Yeah, you see That's the branch the dying off. Yeah, yes. or, or actually just snapping out. And you think, yeah. why did the top come out of that silver birch tree? And then you look and up and you can see yeah. where the borers have been. But I've never yeah. seen them in maples before. No, I hadn't seen them in maples before, although there's no real reason why some of the maples couldn't get them because the borers do tend to like things that have sort of thin bark. Yep. So things like prunuses, birches. Lilacs. Lilacs, yeah. <laughs> All those things, they have a fairly thin bark and the borers seem to quite like that. Mm. So... 
So I guess it's possible that, uh, you're right, I haven't seen them in maples, but I don't see any real reason why they wouldn't. Um, And, of course, they're a native insect, um, so they're about, and they Mm. live in wattles and things in the wild, uh, which also have thin bark. Uh, And certainly if you're near a forest area, you're more inclined to get borers because they're out there in the forest as well. So they can be more of a problem in some of the country areas than they are even in the city. Yep. Okay. That number again, uh, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. In the studio, we have Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants and Craig Wilson from Gentiana Nursery. Do give us a call, uh, the number 94190155. Craig, what else have you got there? Um, some of the best autumn colour in my garden at the moment, mm. Chinese quince, Cydonia yes. sinensis. A great little tree. Yeah, never fails to colour up. Mm. Yeah, um, it's one of those trees, if somebody said, I want the best tree I can have for a smallish garden yep. that does as much as possible throughout the year, mm. that tree would have to be on the top of my list. That's right. Yeah, mm. it's a terrific tree. Pink, pink flowers in spring, incredibly beautiful bark when mm. it gets older. It's a bit like a crepe myrtle with yeah, the bark. Yeah, it is. It's rather like that. I yeah. use that as an analogy because everybody knows a crepe myrtle. That's right. So if you say, well, it's got yeah. bark somewhat in the same vein as yeah. a crepe myrtle, that gets people excited. Yeah, and then this autumn colour. You haven't mentioned the fruit. Yeah, the fruit, well, yeah. I love it. <laughs> These big yellow egg-shaped things that often sit on the tree at odd angles. Yeah. I find them sort of novelly appealing. They always make me grumpy because they don't hold on after they've dropped their leaves, which they're supposed to do. Yeah, well, they sh- yes, the fruit should stick around longer. <laughs> yes. Although I might add it makes bloody good pickle- pickled quinces. Does it? Yeah, so you can use the fruit. Yeah, it's uh, quite woody. Yeah, it takes a bit longer to cook than yeah, a classical would. quince, but its flavour is actually really good. Yeah, it's beautiful perfume. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, so I think the fruit are a feature of the tree, I yeah. have to say, and, and it's yet another something the tree is doing throughout the year. That's right. So even if the fruit doesn't hang on for the period it should into the yeah. winter hanging on the tree like persimmon sometimes will um, it still looks pretty in the late summer yeah. when it's got its yellow egg shaped fruit on it I, I think it's part of the tree I, I love the Cydonia sinensis uh, I met it first at the old Chandler's nursery way way back at, right, the, at yeah. the basin yeah. and they had one in the display garden which may still be there um, and I remember year after year going in and looking at this tree and I'd see it in flower or I'd see it in foliage or whatever and Year after year, I used to say to the Chandler family, you know, you should be growing that. You know, I'll buy it from you if you grow it. And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, we probably should. And they never, ever did. Easy enough from seed. Yeah, and, and they had a beautiful tree of it. I'm, I would be most surprised if I was the only one that actually asked for it. But, no, they never propagated it. Mm. And it took years later that I, I started to get it from other sources. So, beautiful tree. So, yes, Chinese quince, I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Mm, fantastic. And one more, Craig. Um, Tibushina laxa which is a, sort of an odd tibushina with tiny little leaves and quite small flowers, and it's a semi-climber. Oh, okay. So it needs a bit of support. Right. I don't think Stephen would grow it. No, I, I've got like a sense frost. it might be a bit cool, yes. t- uh, intolerant for <laughs> but, me. But this one, it's one of those plants which looks incredibly scruffy in pots, so most nurseries would shun it. But look, I like it. If, if you've got a bit of trellis or something on a fence that you want to cover up, and you're prepared to spend a bit of time tie- tying it up because it doesn't climb nat- naturally, naturally yeah. but yeah. it does need support. Okay. It would be quite climb. good on a, on a cyclone fence or something where you could just keep popping it backwards and forwards through the cyclone yep, wire. that's right. Uh, I've done that with uh, that little abutilin, abutilin me- megapotamicum. Which is a great plant. Yeah. Great plant. Again, it doesn't show itself well off in a pot, though. Yeah. It's this scruffy sort of thing with three or four stems that pop out yeah. with the odd flower stuck on the end, yeah. uh, and you have to do a bit of... Uh, 
swift talking to convince people it yeah. will make a good plant in the garden. Yeah, but yeah, th- threading this through a cyclone fence would be perfect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very pretty, and that wonderful shade of rich purple that Tipicina does so well. And also the stem colours, the, the red with the, mm. gre- the, the sort of soft furry green leaves. It's, yeah, it's a nice little plant. And look, it's almost never ha- um, bare of flowers. I was going to say, it'd probably bloom for a long time. Being pretty much all oh, year. Yeah. Yeah. They tend to, don't they? Yeah. yeah. yeah, the yeah how good is that? Yeah. yeah. Um, right. Aspect? I've got it in semi-shade, but I reckon it'd be all right in the sun. Yeah, I would have thought so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's just probably not something for people in areas like Mount Macedon and Ballarat and places like that. I don't think like it would tolerate the frost. No, no, I think the frost would knock I it to Billy. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. But yeah, very sweet. Yeah, lovely. Okay. Well, I'm delighted to say <clears throat> we've got a special guest in the studio this morning, and I have to say a very good morning to Lisa Klaus. And good morning, Lisa. How are you? Very well, thank you. Good. Thanks for coming in. Oh, I'm very really happy to be here. Really appreciate that. Pleasure. Okay, now, Lisa, you you are um, co-author of a book that's just been released, uh, the Cruden Farm Garden Diaries. Um, perhaps we could we could start. Uh, by uh, giving listeners a bit of an idea about about how the diaries first came about to be written. Mm. Um, Michael started very early, way back at Cruden Farm, didn't he? He did. So he began there in 1971 when he was just 27. He was a landscape gardener by training uh, and someone recommended him to Dame Elizabeth Murdoch who was then in her 50s and working pretty much alone at Cruden Farm. Um, he went up there to have a cup of tea one morning uh, and they hit it off both personally and I think creatively it was an instant connection. Uh, he went to work there part-time. She kept asking him for more and more time and gradually as his other clients moved away or sold up, um, he he ended up working at Cruden pretty much around the clock, it seems, mm. for decades. Yes, I just finished reading the book last <laughs> night and I think anybody who's got the dedication to get out into the garden at 4.30 in the morning to make yes. sure the sprinklers are on, <laughs> those people don't actually exist anymore, do they? No, he is one of a kind um, and he will still do that mm. now. He's in his 70s now. But he, he wakes up at 3 o'clock every morning mm. and usually his first thought is, Cruden, what's happening at Cruden this morning? Yeah. Um, so it was in 1984 that Dame Elizabeth said, look, I've bought this little diary at the newsagent. How about you start keeping a garden diary just so we can chart the, the failures, the successes? Um, and, of course, he does everything with great loyalty and dedication. So he then, for the next, well, until her death in 2012, he wrote religiously in that diary, in those diaries. Yes, um, in the time he had spare after getting up at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and, and he didn't he didn't leave Cruden Farm until very late yeah. in the evening. Yes, yes, he used right. to get into trouble I, I from Dame Elizabeth. Yeah, she should have bought him a watch. <laughs> <laughs> I she don't think it would have uh, made any difference. No, no he, did, uh, he, he did write in the diaries that um, she joked often that she would charge him board because... Yeah. Yeah, he was there all the time. He yes. was. <laughs> he was. Well, that's that's the sort of gardener we'd all like these days, wouldn't we? Yes. Well, yes. very, very rare. Yeah. Yes. Well, Lisa, where do you fit into the picture? Where did you first hear about the diaries? Uh, I heard about Michael... Uh, a few years ago now, perhaps I was reading um, a book about Cruden Farm or a, an article and, and his name popped up, but he was always on the periphery yes. because um, even though he worked alongside one of the most well-known figures in Australia, really, of her time, 
Uh, he w- fiercely avoids any sort of publicity, and you probably saw in the in one diary excerpt he talks about jumping behind bushes oh, when yes, yes. people yes. arrive. Yes. Quite literally hiding himself. Yes. <laughs> um, so I had heard of him and uh, instantly the writer in me just thought, I would love to write about him um, for a few reasons. Just the idea of that dedication, mm. the idea of such a long collaboration um, and what the connection between you know, the, what was the creative alliance between them that, that I found quite fascinating as well. I managed to convince him to talk to me. Yeah, uh, must have you must have been incredibly convincing. <laughs> um, and I wrote a piece for him for, uh, a piece about him for the monthly magazine in 2013, so a year after Dame Elizabeth had died. Um, and then Penguin then approached me sometime later to uh, write a book about um, the diaries with Michael. Mm. Mm. And and Michael obviously agreed to do that. Did he take a lot of coaxing? Um, yes, I think there was quite a lot of um, convincing behind the scenes um, from uh, particularly Penny Fowler, who's Dame Elizabeth's granddaughter, who Michael is um, close to, and um, she she had a few conversations with him. Uh-huh. Yeah, so obviously a powerful lady. <laughs> uh, yes, and uh, she's known Michael all her life, really, so... Uh, uh, they're very close, and um, I can't say that he embraces publicity anymore these days. But he loves Cruden so much that mm. he's um, happy to talk about. Okay, about the garden. fair enough. Mm. So how how did you did you approach the family first? Did you directly approach Michael when I was initially talking to him about um, writing an article about him? Um, I, from memory, I went through the farm itself and and asked them to pass on a message to okay. him, and then it was a conversation with him that um, started it all. all but off. I, I presume the family have embraced the whole idea of. Oh it. yes, very much. Yes, they've been fantastic, very generous with their time and their memories. They've all got wonderful memories of Michael because he's he's been a fixture in Granny's garden um, for so long that um, they were very happy to. To mm. talk about him. Mm. Now, did you actually get to meet Dame Elizabeth? No. Ah, now, that's something that I thought about as I was reading the book. Yes, um, because there are photos of Dame Elizabeth yeah. throughout the book, and mm. I was I was hoping you would have had the opportunity to meet her. Sadly, I didn't. But I will say that I feel through the diaries and through Michael, for whom she is very much in the garden. Mm. I feel that um, I've come close yeah. yes. to knowing her yes. um, and because she was such a remarkable person, people's memories of her are very strong and vivid. Mm. So um, you don't have to scratch too deep to to find out a lot about what sort of woman she was. Mm. I wish I had met her. Yeah, well, mm. I actually, actually have to say some of the sort of entries talking about, you know, people going there and her generosity and all those sorts of things all struck chords with me. I mean, I had met Dame Elizabeth a, a few times. Uh, I wouldn't say we were close friends exactly, but she knew exactly who I was. Mm. And I remember the first time I went to Cruden Farm, she'd been to my nursery some years before, and I vaguely remembered her coming up. I couldn't have remembered what she bought, um, but I know she did get some plants. And I arrived with my friend Otto Fauser from the Dandenongs oh. for morning tea, and um, Dame Elizabeth took us straight out into the garden, and it must have been the autumn uh, because the autumn snowflakes were in flower and she had a big batch of them in the garden and she walked up to them and she said, Stephen, I got those from you 10 years ago. Oh, 
There yeah. you go. So she knew mm. exactly what she got from mm-hmm. me, and she recognised. She knew who I was. She, it yes. wasn't like she was just sort of covering up. She remembered me quite well, mm. and she she knew about uh, what I was doing, and she'd been to my nursery. She actually launched one of my books years ago. Yes. So um, yeah. yeah, so I was very. She did fond actually of call you a national treasure. Oh yeah, <laughs> which I was terribly embarrassed about because I felt she was far more of one than I'll ever be. Um, but yeah, she was a very gracious lady. She was just fantastic. And their knowledge of the garden, her mm. and Michael's knowledge of the garden. As, as you say, is it's extraordinary. Michael can still walk around. It's all in his head. There are yes. no plant labels. Mm. They're trying to do that now, try and write some of this information down and, and some of it's captured in the book now too. But for decades, it's all been in his yeah. head. Yes. And he can look at a tree and say, we got this, uh, you know, he can remember how much he paid for it, where he bought it, why they bought it, mm. you know, still using the spade that he planted it with. Um, yes. It's very old school in the best possible way. Now, the only other analogy I can think of in, in, in a garden sense would have to be Great Dixter in England, where Christopher Lloyd was mm. there most of his life. Uh, well, in fact, he was born in the house there, so he even managed probably a bit longer than Dame Elizabeth. <laughs> uh, he, he was there till his 83rd birthday when he died, and he also had a gardener, probably not of the same longevity as Michael, but another one of these people that would be out there at dawn dealing with things, rushing around, doing things, doing things that weren't necessarily gardening, you know, rushing off to the shop to get something for Christo or cutting his hair or doing, you know, all sorts of stuff. And so Fergus Garrett is sort of an mm. English version of Michael. Um, and, uh, yeah, his dedication to Great Dixter is just astounding. Um, so it's a similar sort of thing. Very lucky gardens, aren't they, oh, to, to find get someone. Mm. someone like that? Now, that is... does raise another issue. Uh, I know in certainly in Great Dixter it's now been set up in a trust. Um, mm. uh, Fergus Garrett is on the trust, um, and his main aim is to keep the garden going, but also to train his successors because mm. this is where the issue can come up is that you've got this very important garden, you've got the genius of the original owner, that now is gone, but the genius of the person who was trained or worked with the original owner is still there, so the mm. the sense of continuity is still in place. But when you get to the third generation, it can often be really difficult to then uh, keep that sense of continuity and, exactly. and, and, mm. and love and care because you've still got to, you've got to find another Michael who's going to get up at four o'clock in the morning yes. to water the lawns. Uh, I mean, that's not that easy to do. So, Or maybe then it becomes a team, that yeah, next well, generation. To, but then um, it, it sort of loses a bit of the personality, doesn't it, in a way, mm. which would be sad. Although, but, you know, you're talking about, about Michael and how lucky Dame, Dame Elizabeth was to have him, and, but it's also the reverse. Yeah, absolutely. To, to, to have the opportunity to work in a garden like that for your whole life and mm. to watch it mature and, and develop. There's not many clients fan, like that. Not many clients like that. <laughs> yeah. fan, Fantastic opportunity. Mm. And she taught him so much. I mean, she took him on overseas trips to look at other gardens. Mm. Um, they went nursery crawling together and yes. all that yeah. sort of stuff. Yes. And everything was discussed, discussed in great detail. They never just said, oh, let's put in something here. It was never spur of the moment. Um, it really emerges how much they, they thought things through and thought about exactly mm. where to plant, what to plant. Yes, it must have been quite annoying sometimes when people arrived with a plant. <laughs> Well, that's why the homeless um, the homeless plants beds bed. yeah. had to happen because Dame Elizabeth was always being given gifts yeah. and often quite large trees. Nothing that... more unwelcome than the gift of a tree. Yes, yes. 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 you've got nowhere to put it. I know that's that right. for her hundredth birthday they were looking for a tree and they ended up getting an oak from me. Um, but we, what we ended up doing was actually give her some choices. So, we, uh, yes. so and I think it was the Guild of 
tapestry makers or oh, some, yes. one of those guilds she, she was, was in, very involved she in. was involved mm. and they wanted to buy her a tree for her 100th birthday mm. and so I gave them a list of three or four different trees that Great. she might like they then went to her and said well Dame Elizabeth which one would you like and so she picked the tree she wanted which Perfect. I thought was that's a much better way much yes. better way of dealing yes. with it yeah. much yes. better way of dealing yes. with it yep. um, but Michael can stand under a, a mature oak and know that he yeah he was there at Fantastic. its... Um, well, I actually use the analogy of the Macedon oaks that are in Cruden Farm yes. because Dame Elizabeth put them in as a young woman. They're now on the National Tree Register. Um, it's got to be the only time in history, probably in any part of the world, where somebody's planted a tree that's ended up on an important national register mm. within their own lifespan. Yeah. Uh, I mean, how often could that possibly happen? How satisfying. Yeah. I'm very mm-hmm. envious of that. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. It's amazing to have yeah. that sort of connection. Mm. Lisa, what's your personal background? Are you a gardener? Uh, I'm a very keen amateur gardener. Right. So it's a small garden, but um, I spend as much time in it as I can. Um, I come from a line of gardeners, mother, grandmother, both grandmothers. But um, no, I don't, I haven't written about gardening before, although this has whetted my appetite because it's so much more. There are the plants, which are wonderful in their own right, but this is – it radiates out into friendship, into mm. um, community, um, into, <clears throat> excuse me, questions of loyalty and dedication, all of which are so fascinating. Mm. Uh, but I'm a writer. I've been a newspaper and magazine journalist for almost 25 years now. So Right. Oh, you look far too young. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Lucky this is radio. Yeah. <laughs> no one can dispute you. Yes. <laughs> So you say this has whet your appetite, so hopefully there's going to be some other projects on the horizon. Well, I'm sure there must be lots of other interesting... Undoubtedly. Yes. Um, Different but interesting yes. garden histories and, and people histories connected with gardens. There's That's got to right. be lots of different people here that haven't, well, like Michael, who mm. in a sense was in the limelight a little bit because most people who were keen gardeners sort of knew he was there. Yes. You know, they knew his name was Michael. They knew he was Dame Elizabeth's gardener. They might not have known a lot more about him than other than he was there forever. Um, yes. But there's got to be other people out there, sort of unsung heroes in the horticultural world that maybe is your next book. <laughs> I'd like to think so. Yes. That would be because I've loved, I mean, I loved writing this book. Um, Michael and Dame Elizabeth were such unique, lively people mm. who have produced something quite wonderful. So. so how long did the research actually take you from woe to go? Uh, so my first job um, was, well, I decided that I wanted to read all of the diaries first. So they're all handwritten in the same fountain pen, um, all beautifully handwritten. But it's interesting now that because we don't, uh, we're not um, uh, around handwriting as much as we used to be, that that's actually quite challenging now. <laughs> yes, to read. To read Even handwriting. Even handwriting, handwriting yeah. yes. Yeah, it can be difficult. Yeah, so it took a bit of a cognitive leap for me to jump back into um, deciphering handwriting rather than reading a screen but once I was into it I was fully immersed because Mm. uh, they're just it it really is a treasure trove Mm. um, of history but it's it's not just about which plant is doing well or not well Um, they became quite personal too because Michael was writing for Dame Elizabeth Mm. at the end of each year he would hand over the diary she would sit down and read it and then it would go off into a a cupboard 
Um, so it really was sort of a, another way of, of them conversing mm. together. So it was quite, there were, you know, and he'd get a bit cross sometimes and put it in the diary or, <laughs> um, you know, there was lots of elation as well. They were both obsessed with measuring rainfall. So there was always mm. you know, great excitement about um, those sort of statistics. Uh, so they're, they're fascinating. Yeah. And Dame Elizabeth herself also wrote entries, particularly if Michael was away, didn't she? She did. She took over, although she was so busy that her diary entries were a little bit um, less um, comprehensive, perhaps, mm. than Michael's. She was always in a hurry off somewhere to launch oh, something. God, yes. or I can't believe um, you, you mentioned she was in a hurry, but, I mean, the descriptions of of her heading off, driving in fury in the car down. Uh, sometimes she would pick all these flowers, put them in open buckets of water. For she wouldn't friends, even get yes. down to the gate and the water would have gone everywhere and yes. she had to come back to fill the buckets up again. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> just an incredible picture. Uh, she sounds like so much fun, though. She'd be rushing off somewhere and there's one story in here where Michael was um, cleaning out the fish pond and um, she dashed past to see what he was doing and say goodbye and... She um, saw that he was in the water and she said, oh, I miss all the fun. So before he knew it, she'd taken off her shoes. She was in the fish pond in her stockings, um, helping him scoop fish out and various things. And then she'd sort of dust herself off and off she'd go. She was very no-nonsense. Oh, yeah. yeah. Nothing grand or fussy. No, no. Um, you, if you'd met Dame Elizabeth on the street and didn't know who you were, were talking to, she was just a lovely, ordinary in the best sense, lady. She was, she, you know, she'd converse with anybody on their level. There was, you know, it didn't matter whether you're the Lord Mayor or the dustbin collector. Uh, she could talk to you mm. on your level and and never look down on anybody or be awed by anybody. She was just her. She was amazing. Very yeah. curious, I think, mm. from the sounds of her. Always curious about oh, people. Oh, yes, yes. She wanted to know about everything. Mm. So she was very acquisitive for knowledge. So, um you know, if you were talking to her about plants, you, you had her complete and utter attention. Right, yes. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, and it wasn't sort of a competitive thing. I mean, I've met keen gardeners who like to throw out a botanical name just because they can and they're hoping that they're going to talk about something that you don't know about because it makes them feel good. Um, it was never about that. It mm. was always about just that uh, acquiring of knowledge. Yes, mm. enjoying it for its own sake. Oh, exactly. <laughs> now, I must ask you too... Um, there's mention in the book that um, since Dame Elizabeth's death, um, Michael has undertaken another project, but this was a project discussed between himself and Dame Elizabeth. So it, it had mm. been planned um, a long while back, but never actually implemented. Do you know if there's any more projects that he still feels he has to complete? Or uh, That was probably the largest one. Um, that was another of their characteristics was great patience. Mm. So... If they had to wait for the garden to be ready for something to happen, and if that took years, then so be it. Um, they never rushed. You, you see that in gardens sometimes, don't yes, you? Yes, they enforce feels... something on a garden that might eventually mm. be fine, but it looks sort of out of place because the garden wasn't yes. ready for it to sort of sit comfortably. So it looks awkward, doesn't yeah. it? And um, they were very attuned to that. So uh, Dame Elizabeth had said to Michael about this particular project, which was a refashioning of the main path through the picking garden. Um, she, she, said today, Mark, uh, she said to Michael towards the end of her life, when you think it's time, uh, I trust you to, to do it when it's time. So he has done that now with, with the um, other gardeners that he works with. 
Um, no, I think that's the most major one. He will often say things like Dame Elizabeth always imagined another tree here or um, Dame Elizabeth would like to see, sometimes it's in the present tense he refers to her, would like to see this area expand um, more as these trees mature. But um, no, I think in a, in a nuts and bolts sort of fashion that was um, probably the last the major, last one. major yeah. one. Yeah, mm. yeah, fair enough. But he is that custodian mm. of her wishes he knows exactly what she would like and not not mm. like, and mm. he's passing that on to the the people he oh, works with. Oh, that's good. That's good. Mm. Yep. Now we we getting back to the book. We really do need to mention um, the photography of Simon Griffith. He must have had um, amazing access to the garden. Yeah, he was probably up at four thirty in the morning. As well. <laughs> I, I'd say he was. <laughs> it certainly looks like it, doesn't it? He's captured the garden in in so many different lights, um, mm. including very early morning, um, late evening. Um, but just be- he really brings the whole garden to life with his photography. He's so talented, isn't he? Yes. Because it's a very photographed garden, so it's a challenge to present it in a fresh way. But he's managed to do that. And so many people who know Cruden very well have said that, that they've commented on how he's seen it from new angles. Even Michael has, has said, I'm so glad that Simon has um, captured it from different perspectives mm. that yeah, other people because there's sometimes haven't. an obvious place to take a picture and so that gets done. To know? death, and yes. So real talent comes out when people are looking at it in a different way and sort of trying yes. to pull it together in a different way. And Simon's always been good like that. I mean, yeah, And to spend a lot of time on it, it's quite clear that he spent time looking for the right shots. And, yeah, yeah. Yes. You know, mm. being there in the right weather patterns, yeah, you know, right. catching the light at the right angle, all that sort of yeah. thing, that's, that's artistic, whereas the rest of us can go around and... and press shutters, uh, but we'll never get anywhere near like that. And the the wonderful thing is, too, that the seasons are so marked at Cruden, so he's really captured that progression mm. yes, um, of change of foliage and flower. Um, so it, he's done it beautifully. Mm. Mm. Now, the other thing I really must congratulate you on is the size of the book, because it looks and feels like a diary. Exactly. It, it could have Good. so easily yes. exploded oh, yeah, into a coffee, coffee table, table. Yeah. which no one can ever lift up and read. You can read this in bed. I, and it's just, you feel like you're holding the diaries in your hand, and I love that. That was, I'm so glad you say that because um, I can't claim credit for that decision. That was the, the wonderful publishing people, but it's clever, isn't it? Because it, is. it was supposed to be like a diary, <clears throat> excuse me, and you can pop it in your bag. or. Mm. Mm-hmm. No, I, th- I think that was, that was very, very clever. So I do congratulate uh, Penguin Random House for that one. Now, I assume it's out now. It is. Yes, yeah, which is probably a really important thing to mention. It is out yeah. now, yes. Um, uh, available at all, as we say, good, good bookshops. Book good yeah. bookshops, exactly. Um, and at Cruden Farm as well. Oh, yes, of course. Mm. Uh, we should also mention uh, that uh, the recommended retail price is uh, forty nine ninety nine. As I said, the publishers at Penguin Random House Australia uh, so if you are looking for it or you want to order it, if your local bookshop doesn't have it in, um, you only need those uh, details. But congratulations. Thank you. It's, you know, I, I think you've done a wonderful job. And as I say, you um, managing to get so much of, of, of capture this essential relationship between Dame Elizabeth and uh, Michael, I think is, is fantastic that somebody has actually got it there forever. To, um, because I feel like through the book we've all got to know Dame Elizabeth a lot more as well as getting to know Michael. Oh, that's good. And it's part of our history, isn't it? It's part of Australian it history. It certainly is. Mm. Yes. So, so I think if people, even if they've been to Cruden Farm in the past, 
I think if they go and visit again after having read the book, they'll see it with renewed eyes. Oh, yes. yes it gives you a whole different concept about it does, the garden. It does, doesn't it? And that's one of the things about gardens that we often don't get. I mean, we often go out and visit gardens, but we don't really... I mean, I remember the first time, harping back to Great Dixter, the first time I went to visit Great Dixter, I didn't really understand the garden, and I, f- I found it puzzling, you know, because uh, it wasn't a garden that was done to numbers like a lot of the National Trust gardens and things are, you know, mm. the Rhododendron Dell will be down there in the Ward Rose Garden or whatever. Um, uh, because Great Dixter was a very personal garden and it was all about Christopher Lloyd. And it wasn't until I got mm. to know Christopher Lloyd reasonably well that it, everything started to fall into place for me well because I was puzzled by it. And I think Cruden Farm in, in its own way is the same sort of thing because it was a very a reflection of the person, in this case, the personalities of the two people. Mm. Um There'll be lots of things about it that you wouldn't understand without knowing something about the personalities behind it. Because, you know, I think all great gardens are made by somebody with a strong personality and that personality has to show out in the garden. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, it is, in fact, just a landscaped piece. Yes. Um, and Cruden Farm is one of our examples in Australia of that very thing. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Well, congratulations, Lisa. Thank you. I think it's a fantastic job that you've managed to pull this all together. And uh, a big congratulations, too, to Michael Morrison for allowing you. Yes, <laughs> and, and I'm sure and Dame Elizabeth would have been pleased. With oh, I think I she would have. So. Yeah, I think she yeah. would have been. Yeah. I think she would, she would have been. been happy for Michael too that he's finally accepted a little bit of the the spotlight. Yeah. Yes, mm. I totally agree. Yes, if she was still around, I think she would have pushed him into it. She would have. <laughs> yes. yes, held him there. Yes, <laughs> if you're right. No, that's wonderful. So those details again. The book is available now. It's called Cruden Farm. Garden Diaries. It's by Michael Morrison and Lisa Clausen. It's published by Penguin Random House Australia. Recommended retail, retail price is forty nine ninety nine, and it is available right now. And I do recommend anyone who's at all interested in uh, in the creating of a garden, in Dame Elizabeth herself, or in Cruden Farm, to uh, get themselves a copy. Hmm. Okay. Well worth it. Thank, thank you, you so much, Lisa, and thank you for coming in and giving up your time this morning. Pleasure. Thanks we'll very much. We appreciate it. Okay. Now, uh, I should say we have been talking with uh, Lisa Clausen. As I mentioned, Lisa is uh, co-author of the book Cruden Farm Garden Diaries, along with Michael Morrison, the, uh, the gardener responsible, working with Dame Elizabeth. We do have one uh, copy of the book available uh, as a supporter segment this morning. If one of our listeners would uh, really like to get hold of a copy of that book and support the 3CR Gardening Show, um, for $50 uh, we can, uh, you can have a copy of this book or if you'd like to add another $10 we will post it out to you. But uh, to get that you do need to give Virginia a call now on 94190155. That's 94190155. Have a talk to Virginia and, as I say, you can support the 3CR Gardening Show and get yourself a copy of this absolutely Actually, wonderful if it's, book. If it's, if it's this morning dealt with, I'm sure Craig would take it back to the Dandenongs if somebody from up there yeah, was no loose. problem at all. Yeah, and I'm very happy to take it back to Macedon if uh, somebody in my neck of the woods wants to buy Fantastic. the book. Fantastic, and, and, and that so will save can, you the postage. And it could save the postage, yes. yes. So, Fantastic. Yeah, so either way. So that number, 9419... Zero one double five, and again, a big thank you to Lisa Clausen for coming in. Pleasure, thank okay. you, uh, Craig. We've you know, I was just going to say before we start. I think yes. one of the one of the things that's always turned me off landscaping 
and there's been opportunities for me to do that, mm. is the concept of walking into a garden, planting it, and walking out again, mm. and never really seeing the results. Mm. And In fact, move, probably not wanting to see the results sometimes. Well, yeah. and never getting to rectify mistakes. Yeah. I mean, mm. I've been working in two gardens now for close to 20 years, and, and one of the things that gives me the greatest pleasure is, is to see them develop. Yes, mm. And to be thing. able to, to be ruthless. Mm. And to be able to remove things that you've put in in earlier stages that haven't worked. But the other thing is you have a concept when you do the planting, but that concept is for a more mature stage and you never see that come to fruition mm. to see yeah. whether that really happened the way you'd planned it or how it developed, whether it, exactly. it was sympathetic yeah. to what the owners were wanting. But also the evolution of the concept. Yes. That, that, that sometimes, you know, in, in the early stages I probably wasn't as experienced as I am now and made lots of blunders and then to be able to go in and see those blunders, to learn from them, and to rectify them mm. is something that a landscaper who's just in and out is never going to be able to do. Yes, to, to be able to work on the one project um, right through for so many years is fantastic. Yeah. And, Stephen, you brought in a plant that actually relates <laughs> yeah, this, in this a very was, strange way yeah, to Damon, this, this was one of my sort of let's do something slightly left field. Because <laughs> yeah. after finishing reading the book last night, I actually finished the last uh, chapter last night, uh, I was getting ready, of course, to go off to Ballarat as I have to today, and I was putting some plants together yesterday to bring with me. Um, and... I was thinking about Dame Elizabeth, obviously, was as I was pulling things out because I just finished finishing the book. Um, and for those who don't know, there is a tree in the Botanic Gardens in Melbourne, uh, a tree called Oricaria angustifolia, which is one of the monkey puzzled family or uh, the same family as the Norfolk Island pine, the Bunya pine, all those rather iconic Southern Hemisphere conifers. This particular one comes from South America. It's called the Candelabra or Piranha pine. And the Botanic Gardens planted one for Dame Elizabeth Murdoch's 100th birthday. Um, it did get nicked and they had to replant another one uh, some, some months later, but I'm not quite sure exactly when they put the replacement in. But I was down in the Botanic Gardens actually not that terribly long ago. Um, uh, there was a, a conference I was a speaker at. And uh, I went for a walk down into the gardens and I looked at Dame Elizabeth's tree, which is now quite a sizable tree, even though it was only planted for her 100th birthday. Mm. Um, the piranha pine, if it's got reasonable watering and a reasonably deep soil will grow surprisingly quickly and this thing's got a trunk on it I suppose and the old measurement's about a foot across at the bottom now and it'd have to be had to be damn near 10 metres uh, it'd have to be 30 feet tall 10 metres like a rocket it's, got, it's really taken off it's wow. just grown incredibly well um, and it's made a very impressive tree mm. um, and so I bought one in this morning because I thought well it all ties in a bit you know uh, well, I'm not quite sure why they selected that particular tree to plant for Dame Elizabeth's birthday I haven't found out and I should at some stage find out what the the reasoning behind it was um, but it's grown really well in the Botanic Gardens. It looks, it's a fantastic tree. It's added to their Oricaria collection, which they've got a very serious one of. They've got some really good New Caledonian ones. They've got now both the South American ones. They've got some big bunyas, of course. So they've got and and the Norfolk Island. So they've mm. got the Australian side of things covered pretty well. Uh, so it's a pretty comprehensive collection of the Oricaraceae family. Um, and uh, yes, and it's got a connection to Dame Elizabeth. So I thought it would be fun to bring it in this morning. Absolutely, and they're the sort of tree that you'd need a big space to grow. Aren't they? they are comparatively <laughs> large. This is not a tree for your Fitzroy Terrace house front garden. Yep, it's <laughs> funny not. when I was up in the north of New Zealand. Of course, the the, the Norfolk Island. 
pecan pines are everywhere. Yeah. I think people tend to buy them for Christmas trees. Yes. Yeah. And then plant them in their front yard. And oh, yeah. then it takes off. <laughs> yeah, no, and in 30 years' things. time, they really regret it. <laughs> but they're such fabulous plants. Oh, wonderful architectural trees. That's I mean, right. there, there's something about that group of trees, about the sort of symmetry of the way they, they're yeah. sort of put together yeah. um, that makes them sort of, you know, in-your-face trees. They're, they're really? there. And, yeah. you know, they, they don't hide themselves. And also for conifers, not terribly shaded underneath yep. them that's sort of quite open yeah yes you can actually grow things up that's against right. the base of them yep. you can keep a lawn in virtually underneath yep. them and all that sort of thing um and they were very popular of course all these sorts of trees back in victorian times and that's why we've got a lot of big ones around now yeah. you know you look around you see huge bunyas you see big norfolk islands uh in the cooler places giant old monkey puzzles and things yep. like that uh because they were they were well, it was sort of a bit of Victorian entertainment, really. They, yeah. they sort of looked at these things as exotic and special and, and weird and fabulous, and so they planted them for entertainment. As well, I think as they had more patience, too. Well, I think they did. I mean, uh, these they, days... they didn't have PlayStations and televisions and yeah. things back then, so they had to be more patient. These days, the word slow is not popular in the nursery industry. No, no I actually think we should start the slow plant movement. Slow Absolutely. Movement. Yes. Yeah. 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 Slow <laughs> gardening. Yeah, yes. if we can get away with the slow food mo- um momentum i don't see why we can't do it in plants yeah. uh, i always say to people if you've if you've got a real problem that you need to height screen yourself from like the neighbor's kitchen window looks through your bathroom one instead of planting something really fast just walk naked backwards and forwards a few times they'll stop looking <laughs> they'll pull the uh, down. Yeah, yeah, yes that's right so um <laughs> you know don't be in a hurry for anything that's right you know i think you know the charm of gardening is the slowness of it it's yeah, like absolutely that issue where people stopped planting box hedges and put in lanissa and atida as hedging because they thought it was going to do it quickly and by crikey it did but if you didn't trim it once a week it looked yeah. rubbish exactly mm. fast growing plants are fast all their lives so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so and so you end up paying the, the price for having something absolutely quickly. well yeah. they're also often fast dying too yeah well some yeah. of them are yeah, yeah. yes yeah. they have a very merry but short existence yes, some of exactly those plants. exactly we need to go to our next caller and we have fermi at reesdale good morning fermi good morning pam good morning panel how are we, Hi, Fermi? Fermi. We're, uh, we're well, thank you. Stephen good. and Craig, how are you? I'm um, good, thanks, Fermi. Good. Well, I was ringing up about Noreen's. Ah. Why can't I get Noreen Bowdenite to flower up here? You know, the There's no reason here. why you shouldn't flower Noreen Bowdenite that I can think of, Fermi. Um, and knowing you as the gardener that you are, I can't imagine that you've buried them too deeply or done any of the things that you shouldn't do with Noreen's. No, I'm not sure. Are they more susceptible to frost than, um, say, flexuosa or... The uh, flowers would be, uh, Mm. but... I don't think that's the issue because they'd still be setting flower buds even if they okay. got knocked out. So mm. you'd have you'd have your flower buds up and ready to flower, and then the frost might knock them off. Yeah. But they would still flower. Yeah. Well, I've had some of the sunny Ansys hybrids that will um, um, that grow, but then the leaves get frosted off. Yeah. And then, then of course, they're not going to be able to build up enough strength to flower. Yeah, well, Bardenia but, is supposed to be one of the more cold-hardy. I mean, yeah. they can grow it against sheltered walls in England. Um, well, yeah. So Maybe that's what I need to do is grow it again. Well, because uh, Rosia and um, and uh, what, what we used to be called Fothigula major yeah. will mm. flower quite well in the open here. Yeah. And so, I mean, they take frost like anything. Yeah, but, and um, look, I would have thought Bardenia I wouldn't have been far off. Yeah, I would have thought that too. Yeah. So I can't imagine what the major issue is for me. I think uh, it might be one of those plants that don't like you. Mm, possibly. 
Possibly. <laughs> well, I've got plenty of the others, and uh, but I mean, I I do tend to shelter the um, the Sarniensis hybrids. We got a lot of them from Peter Jennett when he came up to Ferny Creek. Ah, yes. He, he had, you know, he he grows them by the field full because he grows them as cut flowers for the nursery trade, yeah. uh, for yes. the cut flower trade. So, but he he will sell them sometimes when um, when he goes to do talks and things. So they're all doing well for you, though. Well, they're all well, but I, I, because of the Sarniensis blood, I do try to protect them, and like they're in either in the uh, shade house or under a tree or something mm. like that, and they'll flower there. Mm. And but, I would have thought the Bardenii should be much the same. Yeah. Uh, the only issue with it is it is later flowering than some of the others, oh. so maybe the possibly the buds are being frosted out before they actually show. I don't know. I did get the the very pale one that um, I think they call it variety Wellsii, and I think in Australia it's known as um, Menina Forest. Mm-hmm. You know, the very pale pink one. It's almost white. And um, I did get that flowering once or twice under a, 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 a Mexican hawthorn. And, and then, well, then it didn't flower again. So, I, well, it hasn't flowered for the last couple of years, and I, I can't imagine it's getting frosted. No, it because doesn't sound like it would, protected. not under a Mexican hawthorn. I would have thought yeah. that would break the frost up quite well. Yeah. So I don't know, Fermi. Oh. Uh, it may well be one of those little sort of uh, inexplicable things that gardening throws at you sometimes <laughs> that you never really find out the reason yeah. for. Um, but, uh, you know, persistence can sometimes pay off. Yeah. I will, I'll try it again. I might try them in a... a well, the flexuoses are actually... The, one, the only clump we've got is actually in the lee of the house so that... Um, yeah, and it does all right there? Yeah, and it flowers. And, in fact, I think there's Bowdenii were planted with them. Nice. And I've never had the Bowdenii flower, but just the Flexuosa. Mm. Well, now it's not Flexuosa anymore. It's now Humilis, apparently. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yet another name change. Uh. Well, <laughs> yeah, it goes back a bit further because uh, I think they... It was the original name was Humilis, and then for some reason, because Flexuos is not a recognised name for, um, oh, yeah, for any Noreen now. Mm. So oh, was, dear. All right, well, I better change my labels then because I wasn't aware of that. Don't, don't bother. <laughs> they'll, they'll change it back. Yeah, well, quite, quite possibly. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. Yeah, so sorry we can't be yeah. definitive, Fermi. Okay, well, try some different places for it then. Uh, that's probably the only way to go. Yes. Thanks a lot. Okay, bye. Oh, bye. bye. All right. Wow. Um, I mean, Fermi is such an experienced bulb grower. That's right. Yeah, but it is fun to know that he's struggling with something. And something so common. Yes, and it makes you feel better. (laughs) It does. I have to agree. Yeah, yes. (laughs) Oh, dear. Okay. I think position's everything, isn't it? If it was me, I'd try moving them around. Yeah, I'd try them in every spot I could think of. Even places you wouldn't expect them to work, because sometimes that's what you need. Well, I was almost wondering if you should try some in a pot and try and juggle the the location, you know. But um, anyway... Because the other thing with Noreen's is when you move them, they don't flower for a few years. Well, so. that's the other issue. Yes. <laughs> the more you fiddle, the more likely you are to, in fact, not get them to flower that's for right. a yes. yeah. yeah, so they can be a bit of a catch-22 situation, the yes. old Noreen's. Yeah. yeah. Okay, we'll go next to Jill from the Herb Society. Good morning, Jill. Good morning, Pam, and everybody else, Stephen and... Craig. And Craig, yes. Um, on Thursday evening, the Herb Society at Burnley in Room 10 is having Howard Fox come and he is uh, from the plant nurseries um, labelling company 
And so he's going to talk about the fund of information that's needed in order to um, do plant labels that are accurate with the botanical name and with some idea about um, position for the plant and so on. So that should be an unusual and fascinating insight into a, a sort of a commercial aspect of gardening. And we're also having um, herbal supper. We have a raffle of a book on plant. And we have about 35 people there who are all been gardeners. And often there's uh, cuttings to be had and um, plants to be given. So it'll be a jolly evening as usual. And that's 500 Yar um, Yarra Boulevard, Richmond. And that's Melway 45... Uh, 12. Excellent. So, okay. Yeah. Sounds good. Thanks, Helen. Thanks very much. Okay. Bye, Jill. Bye. All right. Uh, we might go to another plant, Craig, before we go to our next caller. Okay. The One of the most common questions in the nursery for me is, I want something bright and colourful for the shade. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which is almost an impossible. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, you can only plant so many cliviers. That's right, yeah. <laughs> But look, Plectranthus actually fit the bill quite well, I think, mm, yeah. for autumn flowering things. Stephen probably has a bit of grief with uh, them. Yeah, some of my Plectranthuses flower well one year and then I don't get them to flower for three years after that because the frost knocks them down yeah. every time yeah. they're about yeah. to bloom. But yeah. certainly in the Dandenongs, they're, they're just everywhere. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. They're almost over. feral. I think I almost. saw some the other day that don't, didn't look like they were inside somebody's garden. That's right. <laughs> you see them over the roadside, particularly Ecloniae, which is, you know, also comes in, um, in white and pink. Don't like the pink. Yeah, I don't like the white. Don't you? Yeah. <laughs> See, I quite like the white, but I, I, I think the pink looks somehow, I don't know, it's just not a nice shade of pink. I and I just think. don't think it's a nice shade of white. It's yeah. sort of on that slightly muddy side of white. It's yeah. not clean enough for me. But the, 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 certainly the mauve one is fantastic. Oh, it's it's a really rich colour. It's yeah. not sort of wishy-washy at all. It's a really good strong colour. And it goes so well with autumn colours. Mm. Mm. I'll tell you what, I've flower. got it under, and it is flowering this year at home. It's managed to flower because we haven't had any frost yet. But I've got it under Cotoniaster Rothschildiana, which is a yellow-fruited Cotoniaster. Okay, that would work really nicely. And the fruit's just ripening now, yeah. uh, and it makes a lovely sort of archy small tree. It's a, it's a really quite pretty little tree, yeah. and it seems to be sterile because I've never, ever had a seedling come up. That's good. Um, but the little yellow berries look gorgeous, and with the, the bluey-purple of the, of the uh, plectranthus underneath... I have to say, I think it was an inspired combination. Yeah. <laughs> but it only happens every few years. Was because, it deliberate? Well, it was, sort of was. I knew that the Cotoniaster would fruit in the autumn and I knew that colour would sort of work yeah. really well. But, of course, I don't get it every year um, because the the poor old Plectranthus often gets knocked down. Yeah. Um, and, in fact, it was funny because there's a patch of the white one further down the same border and... He who must be obeyed at home said, I want some more of the white one further up. And, and I disobeyed and put the blue one in because I thought it was going to look much more interesting. And, and it certainly has. Yeah. It's, it's really pretty. And it's a nice shrub too. I mean, it yeah. gets up to metre and a half to two metres right. tall. So it's, it's quite a good-sized plant. And any can contain it with a good hard chop after it's flowered oh, yeah. in the spring to, if you want to keep it a bit lower. Well, just send it up to me and the frost will deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> There's a whole raft of them. A couple of the really good ones have got plant variety rights on them. Mm. So I'm not allowed to sell them, but right. yeah, this one's from Virginia's garden. This is Zuluense, which I'd buy just for its name. Yes, it's a great name, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but it's just the most beautiful colour. 
mm. really soft mauve and, and sort of almost lime foliage. Yes, yeah, and so the dark the leaf stems too. Yeah, I, I, I right. love that dark leaf yeah. stem and, and stems that sort of, with the pale foliage, it actually makes it even better. Yeah, mm. Virginia told me I'd fall in love with it and she was right. <laughs> it's, it's a really beautiful plant. No, that's plant. a lovely one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all shade plants, by the way. Yep. Yeah. And, um, but again, that lime foliage would really light up in a shady area. Absolutely. So it yeah. would work beautifully. The foliage on them is nice, mm. um, really, throughout the year. It is. It's yeah. very pleasant. Yeah. And then, of course, in autumn, you get this. And Cicatus is the other one I bought in, which is quite a low-spreading one. And I actually have a bit of trouble. I think it probably likes it a bit warmer than what I can provide. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But it's a good yes, one. It looks almost slightly succulenty that way. Yeah. It's not really, but it just has that sort of succulent look about it. Yeah, but I, I look, I keep some alive over the year so that I can propagate it for the nursery. And it's, it's one that makes really good hanging baskets mm. because it sort of spreads out and down. Okay. Yeah. So that's Plectranthus. And there are a whole lot more of them. But, you know, there's only so many you can grow in your garden. Well, with any group of plants, it's difficult to just keep collecting because they can sort of become overbearing in the garden or that's the garden right. sort of hits its straps at only one time of the year because that's when they tend to all flower yeah. or whatever. So, yes, you do have to be sensible. You can't keep every single oh, one. Oh, no. And small genus are more appealing, I think. Well, they are because you can collect a lot and feel like you've done it then. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll go to our next caller and we have uh, Anne out in Baldwin. Good morning, Anne. Oh, good morning. Uh, I was wanting to ask, please, about my dahlias. Now, mm. this year, um, they've usually been fantastic, but this year I've hardly had a flower. It hasn't grown very well. Mm. And I plant. I bought two more. I think I bought one up at um, Fernie Creek. I bought another one somewhere else. And none of them has flowered. Are they getting enough sunlight? I yeah, mean, the, the yeah. dahlias were late this year because we had such a long... Um, Damp, cool spring and early summer. That's right. They're real autumn flowers this year. Yeah, they've they've come out really, really late in the season. <laughs> well, uh, the, the one that does flower and has got a few flowers is flowering at the moment, yeah. but mm. it hasn't grown very well. It's just a. It was quite a big bush, and it all. It was a. It's a red spidery one, and it was always beautiful, covered. Mm. Do you lift flower. them and divide them periodically? I actually did that with this one. Last year, yeah. So it's been divided. So yeah. yeah so it hasn't um, hasn't in fact sort of crowded itself out in no. a sense because dahlias do need to be lifted and divided regularly. No, um, I find you don't need to lift them and store them like you would if you were growing them in England. So that most of them are fine in the open ground yeah. over winter. Yeah, but I just I just did lift it and yeah. divide. Now it. you do know that dahlias are also quite heavy feeders. That's what I was going to say. That yeah. Uh, that might be. I guess that could be the case. But yeah. the two yeah. that I planted, the new ones, mm. nothing. Yeah, I'd yeah. give them a few kilos of dynamic lifter. Yeah, yeah, I would feed them like <laughs> okay. mad next season yeah. Um, uh, because I think the, the feeding might be part of it. This year I'd be very surprised if they weren't getting enough moisture, so that's probably no, not that's a, an issue. Not, yeah. Um, but yeah, they just your soil might not be not might not be rich enough because okay, dahlias dahlias are like vegetables. If you can grow a good cabbage, you should be able to grow a good dahlia because okay. uh, they yeah. like similar conditions. They like a sunny aspect, a well drained soil, but plenty of nutrient in there. Yeah. So is, this, is there any point feeding them at, well, at this time of year? Not really. I mean, oh, they're about to get, they're going to collapse soon. Yeah. I mean, you could, if you put down something, they might get a little bit out of it, but you're going to get much better value if you put down a food sort of In late spring. winter, early spring. Yeah. You could give them a liquid feed now. Yeah, well, you possibly could. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 So you could yeah. try that, and that might just give them a bit more oomph for next year. Yeah. the spring. It's yeah. strange that none of them, they've all just sort of seemed to be very unhappy this year. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is interesting because I mean, I found um, I don't grow a lot of dahlias, but I've got some, uh, and uh, 
I found them late, but I, they certainly flowered all right. Yeah, same. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I shall do that. Thank you very much. Okay. Good okay. luck, Anne. Bye. Bye. All right, next up we have uh, Klaus, who's in Essendon. Good morning, Klaus. Good morning. Uh, good morning, all. Um, been listening to your show many, many years, my wife and I. Oh, thank uh, you. Uh, I think this is probably a problem that lots of people have, possums. <laughs> no, um, nobody has any possum <laughs> troubles. <laughs> <laughs> um We've had this, um, well, two actually, golden ribbinias. The yeah. one at the front is just starting to be eaten. But the one in the back, facing on the north side, um, probably got to about seven metres, and it's been completely denuded. It's, mm. it's dying. Right. It's gone. So we have to replace it. So um, you wise people, would there be anything? One of the... Um, um, Plants or trees we had in mind was the Chinese potassia. We've gone at the front. Yeah, that would be possibly a good choice. Um, I don't know that the pistachio is one of those things that the possums really go for. Don't uh, I haven't seen. That. I haven't seen any possum issues with pistachios. The problem with possums is you'll often get an individual animal that takes a particular liking to a particular mm-hmm. plant, and sometimes it can be something unexpected in a garden that a particular possum takes a fancy to. And they just keep coming back. And to they it. do until they either die or the tree does. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so sometimes there's you know no way around it other than putting um, uh, collars around the trees if they're not no. accessible from other trees around them. Uh, I've got a tree in my garden home called a pseudopanax, the uh, New Zealand um, lancewood. They're eating that. Pseudopanax crassifolium, they almost killed it this year. How bizarre. Yeah, and so I, and because it is one of the very few trees in my garden that's reasonably isolated, yeah. so the possums were obviously going up the trunk, I've put a perspex collar around the tree yeah. and now it's reshooting again. Um, and so as long as I can keep the possums out of the tree, it'll be fine. Uh, and it's been there for probably 15 or 20 years. Yeah. It's got a quite good-sized head on the top of it. And this year was the first year I had any issues. And suddenly this one possum decided it likes pseudopanax and it's been hounding it all season. What about um, pomegranates? Um, good question. I've not noticed pomegranates as a particular yeah, issue for possums so either. So it's a matter of finding something that they will leave alone. And certainly I think the pistachio is a possibility. I think Craig's right. The uh, uh, pomegranate might be good, but don't get the dwarf ones. Yeah. So get a proper-sized pomegranate. Um, I mean, I've got lots of trees in my garden the possums don't seem to touch, but I'm nervous about suggesting anything in case you've got a possum with particular tastes because <laughs> uh, I've seen it happen time and time again. I mean, I've got a deciduous fetinia in the garden, fetinia bovardiana, which is a lovely tree, and the mm-hmm. possums seem to leave it alone. Yep. It has nice spring blossom, pretty berries, great autumn foliage, and makes a very pretty little layered tree. Um, but I couldn't promise anything. <laughs> no, no, okay, that's cool. Um... Well, but, yeah, I think your first Im- impulse of a pistachio would be nice. Yeah. I mean, they're a very pretty tree. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and also they're very pungent. You know, you, um, I thought, oh, the smell's not very good. They're sap. Mm. I might add, though, that may not be necessarily something that will stop possums because a plant that possums seem to love and it's got the most incredibly awful smell when you pick it and cut it and it's all full of resinous sap and that's the cottonous, yeah. the, the smoke bush. And yet the damn things will eat it and eat it and eat it. And in my garden, roast too. Yeah, well, related, and yeah. Yeah, and they'll give that a hiding. Yeah. Um, and um, so it's not always the case that something that 
is unpleasant in its smell to us is going to be the same to possums. Okay, thank you very much. I might give you a ring another 10 years. Yes, and let us know how you get on. Yes, what a good idea, Klaus. The the only other thing I can say, Klaus, though, is to look at access. Yeah, um, yes. Yeah. Uh, because sorry, if you can, if you can work out yes. the way the possum's getting into yeah, the tree... we can't do it. It's near fence. It's impossible. Yeah. And okay. It would be very difficult to stop. But yeah. anyway, uh, thank you for your advice. Okay, no, then. a pleasure. Bye. Okay. Bye. Yes, those damn old possums. Yeah. Oh, yes. You've got to work with them, don't you? Well, I think you do in the end. You can't really beat them. So, yeah. uh, I mean, I lost my golden rabinia years ago to the possums, mm. and I've never bothered to try Put and another one in here. They yeah. like them, don't they? Yeah, and, uh, yeah... Uh, unfortunately, they seem to take to standard Japanese maples quite well as well, too. I've never had an issue with my maples. Yeah, well, see, they're, they're interesting because I've had quite a few possums that have had a crack at maples. Yeah. Uh, they love sugar maples. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I, I, I plant maples with some hesitation these days because mm. I've had some serious damage done by the possums. The biggest problem I have is magnolias, which yeah. is kind of obvious. Yeah. Yes. Yes, those nice, big, fat, juicy flower buds. <laughs> Fleshy right. yes. petals. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They do like a nice magnolia salad. Yeah. <laughs> you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show in the studio this morning. We do have Stephen Ryan and Craig Wilson. Um, we are running through until 9.15. You do have time to jump on the phones if you'd like to ask a call. Uh, meantime, we'll go to our next caller, and we have uh, Bernie, who's out in Langwarren. Good morning, Bernie. Good morning to you all, and thank you for your show. Um, yes, pruning. Uh, I find... Every time I look at the internet or somewhere like that, <laughs> yes. there's a very little, or in books, there's very little to tell you about pruning and yeah. when to. Pruning what? Uh, well, I'm going to say now, Sorry. Uh, a polygala. Yeah, well, you're not going to find a lot of information on those sort of things in, in the internet or books because it's just a matter of trimming them over every yeah. so often. Usually with flowering, evergreen flowering shrubs, it's straight after flowering. Yeah. The issue with polygala is, of course, it flowers almost non-stop. It's always flowering. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. you just got to forego the flowers yeah. for a while if you want to keep the plant compact. But flowers on new tips, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, so it'd be it, straight away again. Yeah, it would come back into bloom again fairly quickly afterwards. Yeah. Uh, if it were my if it were my polygala, I would probably give it a, a light trimming over every spring. Yeah. Uh, so that it will then stimulate it into flower for the summer autumn, which is a time when you need more flowers than you do in the spring. Uh, so I'd look at it from the perspective of when is it better to have it in flower to make some impact in the garden. So when you say a trim, what would you say, three, four inches? Well, it depends on how big the plant is. I mean, if I... It's about a metre. Yeah, well, I would then... If it's about a metre, I'd go over it and take, oh, a good 15, 20 centimetres off the top of the plant. Not yeah. that much, yeah? Yeah, oh, yeah, because if you don't bring it back, polygalas uh, or some of the modern compact hybrids tend to stay pretty bushy anyway, but some of the older forms uh, will get quite leggy underneath. So unless you've got something planted in front of it to hide its bare legs, it can it can sort of look very mushroomy at the top. So you need to prune them back reasonably heftily to keep them low and compact. In springtime? Yeah, I would do it in the spring. I mean, you could do it at any time of the year, but if you do it in the spring, not only will you then get summer, autumn flowers, but you'll also get very quick response because it's warming up and the plant will reshoot again. So the cut-over plant that you've got will quickly refurbish in foliage so that you don't have it looking cut for too long. Okay, so that's like um, September after frost? Uh, I don't think the polygala is particularly frost tender, so I, I'd even do it fractionally earlier than that, so I'd get things moving pretty quickly in the spring. So uh, I'd be looking at, you know, sort of late August, early September. OK, uh, thanks for that. And um, salvia, that's another one, because that's always flowering too, and I'm very impressed with salvia. 
Yeah, well, well again, it depends with, on which one. The thing with salvia is they don't like being cut so much when they're dormant. Mm. So I tend to wait until they're growing, so late spring, and then yeah. cut them hard. But if, if you see them growing, you can almost cut them to the ground. Mm. And they'll come away oh, again. That, that far back. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah, most of the salvias are not really truly shrubs. They're they're more sort of woody perenni- perennials. Yeah, they're woody perennials, and so they need to be treated like a perennial and get rid of the old wood as much as possible yeah. regularly. Yeah, and no, then if, again, you can do them again in January if you want a really good autumn display because they start getting a bit leggy and falling over. Mm. Yeah, give them a good uh, chop in January, and they'll come back again and flower for autumn. Do you predominantly get um, red and um, sort of lavender colour? Oh, you can get almost any shade in, in salvias. Yeah. You know, okay. So, you know, there's yellow ones, there's white ones, uh, all sorts of shades of mauve to blues and purples. Uh, then there's the sort of shell pinks right through to the hot pinks to the reds. Yeah. Um, there's hardly a colour you can't get in a salvia if you look hard enough. Okay. How, again, how far would you cut that back? Say... The plant oh, is you take them back to high. virtually ground level. Oh, can you? As long as they're growing. Yeah, as long as they've got some new shoots Don't do from that the in the winter when they're yeah. just sticks. No, no, springtime. Yeah, yeah, when they're growing. Yeah, because yeah. they are sort of a perennial, so you need to get rid of all the old wood. Okay, and lastly, thank you, um, I've moved some clivia. Now, they got badly, or they sort of, well, badly hit with the hot sun. Yeah. I've moved them to a more shady place. Um... Should I take the old leaves off? Well, when I when I dig and shift them, I tend to cut the foliage back anyway because mm. then they start to move away much quicker. But they're one of those plants that they sulk. it's hard to kill, but they'll sulk for a while yeah, until they right. get their act back together again. They tend to go backwards before they go forwards, yeah, don't they? Yeah, but, you know, you won't kill them. If you leave them alone, they'll come back in due course. If you cut the leaves off them, they'll come back in due course. Mm. Um, so it's just a matter of patience with them more than anything else. Would the leaves self-repair? No, no, you'll get new no. leaves. Okay. No, so take the old ones off. Yeah. Completely right to the... No, I'd cut them down to sort of a fan at the bottom. And then once all the new leaves have come up, then you can just pull the dead half leaves so off So you later. treat them like a bearded iris. Yeah, like a bearded iris. Just cut no. them down. That way you can still see where okay. they are. Um, no. And they'll send up new leaves through the centre of the, the crown anyway. No. And once all those new leaves are in place, then you can just pull off the half-cut ones that you've left there. Oh, good. Thanks very much. You've been very, very helpful. That's As a pleasure. Okay, bye. Thank you. Bye. Right, next up we're going to uh, Jeff. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, all. Thank you for your program this morning. I wanted to uh, ring in and let you know about International Permaculture Day, which is next Sunday. All right. <clears throat> and you, people can go on to permacultureday.org and have a look at the overall world thing. It's an international thing, but... Next Sunday in Ashburton, the Winton Road Food Forest is going to be, have an open day for people to come along and people can go on to either the Winton Road Food Forest website, which is uh, foodforestashy.wordpress.com or else you can go to Facebook and put in uh, Food Forest Ashburton and find, find that and um, basically uh, come along. Uh, I'm not sure what time it all starts. My wife is the key organiser of it. She's well, you should know then, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here it is, 11 a.m. <laughs> yeah, she, this was activated. One of the things we have now with all the coverage of our properties with two houses, no-one's got a backyard anymore, and really you need one of these sort of things in every block. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's a fantastic example. It's gone through... The, it's been supported by Burundara Council and it's 
it's in, in, uh, it's had a second stage put in, so it's now got a little covered area where you can have a you know birthday party or something rather underneath it, and your kids can have a roam round. And the first stage are all labelled. The second stage, when they're fully established, uh, they'll get labelled too, so people oh, can fantastic. find out what sort of plants. Great. So that's from eleven o'clock, and I'm assuming it goes to about four in the, in mm-hmm. the afternoon. <laughs> I just want to let people know. So its its actual address is 38 Winton Road, Ashburton, W-I-N-T-O-N. Excellent. So, yeah, thanks for that. And I have to see lots of people. Absolutely. And happy Permaculture Day for next week. Mm. Thank you for that. Bye. Okay. Thanks, Bye-bye. Jeff. On Bye. a slightly more flippant level, I was tweeted yesterday that apparently it's Nude Gardening Day. No. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I tweeted back. It was, this was an English uh, Twitterer who's sent out that it was Nude Garden Day, yes. and I, I, I tweeted back and said, it's all very well for you, but we're going into winter. That's right. <laughs> uh, oh, dear. Okay, yes, prune your roses uh, in the nude. There's a good idea. Oh, yes. great idea. <laughs> uh, let's go to uh, Terry next out in uh, Chelsea. Good morning, Terry. Terry. Are you there, Terry? We're not getting Terry through. What's going on? I don't know. We might put uh, Terry back on hold and see and see what happens. Okay, we'll uh, go next to uh, Sarah in Dallas. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning to you and to 3CR. Um, um, my message to those who write a book about food, I want investigation and I want, uh, like, to... To get all the information uh, at the shop about the food they sell, because sometimes you find very unusual olive uh, size, very big, and and the banana is getting so big all the time. I go to the shop and I observe so many things, unusual size for the banana and uh, olive and uh, grapes. And I want also investigation about the, the organic food. I think we spoke about this week with you, uh, last week with you, all about this, Sarah. There is so many things in the organic shop is not organic, and all the food, uh, all the organic food everywhere, the same thing, the same, the same company. I assume they they getting. From the same company and all the same. If they're certified organic, uh, they have to be certified. Otherwise, they cannot get that license, and they can't allowed to advertise that they're organic. That's quite a rigorous process. It is a very rigorous process. It's not organic, and uh, and uh, many, especially the potato, is so sour, and the banana also, Mm. and the fruit has no smell. And it's not organic. Yeah, well, I'm not so sure it's not organic, Sarah. I think we discussed this last week. But a lot of these things are, in fact, picked too early. And so, therefore, so that they can ship the bananas from Queensland, they can't pick them ripe. And so we tend to get less flavoursome fruit because it's picked early and and it's artificially ripened afterwards. Uh, It doesn't mean, though, that they're not organic. It just means that they're not being grown through to ripeness, which is a a quite different concept altogether. Yeah, I think also people tend to forget about seasonality with fruit these days. And, you know, if if you start buying apples in January, well, they've been picked and cool-stored from the previous autumn. Which, again, doesn't mean they're not organic. It just means that they're being held over out of season. So... 
in fact, they could be have lost a lot of nutrients and value anyway because yeah. they're they're really, in a sense, artificially far too old. They should have rotted, not yeah, been eaten. That's right. So you know, these are all part of the whole scenario, which. It's far more complicated than just being organic or not being organic or, or being certified organic or, you know, the different levels that you can have. It's also how the plant uh, or the material is processed and stored and shipped. And, and that's what I think we said last time. The way to around all of these things is to grow as much of your own food as you can and therefore you know exactly where it's been, what it's been treated with. And you can pick it when it's and fully ripe. you can ripe. pick it when it's fully ripe because it makes all the difference in the world to flavour. And it's all about the shipping of stuff, so stuff is getting picked far too early and that's yeah, more of an issue we, we grow we grow uh, if we grow the birds will eat everything already there is some trees and the trees uh, the fruit being eaten by the birds and then 100%. you have to net you have to net yeah, you have to, your fruit trees and net them yeah you know there's ways and means around all these things you've just got to be inventive and and do a lot of research i what mean about I, the, the council no, it's got nothing to do with the council. responsibility we pay for, for the council. Yeah, but they're no, not no, responsible for your vegetable garden. You've got to look after that yourself. I virtually live out of my vegetable garden with regards to greens and most of the seasonal vegetables I want, like sweet corn, uh, all those sorts of things. I grow all my own. You'd um, be swarming with parrots. Yeah, and we are swarming with parrots. And you. But this time, um, this time I am saying my message to those who write books about food and they should give, give this uh, investigation yeah, uh, well, a chance. Well, and, and I'm sure people out there are researching all the different sorts of things and there's probably books on permaculture and, and other growing techniques that would give you all that information. I'm, I'd be very surprised if it's not out there. You've just got to find it. Okay. Go yes, to your local you. library and see what you can find, but I'm sure there's books out there all about it. Anyway, we must move on. We're nearly running Thanks. out of time. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Uh, very quickly, we'll go to George, who's in Preston. Good morning, George. Good morning, Pam. How are you? Well, thank you. Um, I just went to a big um, Australian garden sale out in Eltham. You advertised a couple of weeks ago, and um, really pleased with what I bought. And oh, I good. Always wanted to get a hold of some national, well, Victoria's album. album oh, I'm sorry, Pink Heath. Yes. Yes. And curious, I really want to know. Um, I know they're very difficult normally to get going in um, exotic-type gardens like mine with the combination soil conditions. And kangaroo poor also bought them. Just curious, do I need to get a specific soil? Kangaroo pores are generally, particularly some of the modern cultivars that are out there, are generally pretty easy in average garden conditions as Mm -hmm. long as they get sun and they get good drainage. So the the kangaroo pores are fairly easy. The thing with the pacris is to keep them pruned. Don't, Uh Don't let them get laggy. Yeah, so Cut your pink heath, keep nipping it back yeah. and plant it somewhere where you're not going to dig and disturb around it because yeah. they really dislike disturbance. And again, well-drained and not too rich a soil. I mean, uh-huh. if you see pink heath growing out in the bush, it's often in, in Very pretty poor rocky, soil, poor, rocky, clay, yes. sort of rubbishy yeah. soil. Uh, and so you don't want to overfeed and over, over mollycoddle it. Okay. Um, and it, sh- it, it is more difficult than some other native plants, but it shouldn't be ungrowable. Yeah, I've got a friend in Mombok who's got a big collection of apacris, mm. and she cuts them right to the ground after they've flowered. Okay. Yeah. And I oh, presume quickly. because it's usually in, in fairly rocky uh, soil, you need to look for good drainage oh, as yes, well. Oh, yes, I would imagine Very good so. drainage. Mm. I also just put in some um, tulips. Is that a good time? Now is the time to plant your tulips. Excellent. Yeah. Um, you need to get your tulips in by sort of... 
mid-May at the latest, yeah, I reckon. I would have given them two or three weeks in the fridge before you put them in. Yeah, maybe. That, yeah. Although a lot of them now are being yeah. pre-dealt with. If okay. you're buying fresh tulips, I mean, if you say buy some from Tesla's or one of the major tulip suppliers, mm. um, they tend to be pre-treated, so they should I've be fine the first year. Mm. Sorry? I've got these at the garden show. Yep. Yeah. yeah, they should be fine, yeah. but certainly don't leave them much longer before mm. you put them in. I mean, tulips are one of the last of the spring bulbs that you can plant, but you need to get them in soon. Sorry? Any special fertiliser? No. No. No, just, just give them some um, uh, manures and things after you've planted them oh, yeah. uh, and they'll be fine. Yeah. Okay, we must go, Thank George. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Very quickly, Craig, uh, they want to know which epimedium you were talking about. Oh. Uh, <laughs> versicolor. Yes, if you say ask for versicolor. Versicolor, yeah, and the variety is neosulfurum, but the neosulfurum bit probably is irrelevant. Well, just... it's the main one that's been grown. That's right, yeah. yeah. Okay, we have definitely run out of time. A big thank you to Virginia, who's been handling all the calls. Uh, for those interested, we were talking earlier with Lisa Clausen. Um, she's the co-author of Cruden Farm Garden Diaries, so look out for that one in your bookshop. Uh, we will, of course, be back again next week at uh, 7.30. Until then, bye for now. <music> 